Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Always love talking to my friend, Brandon Webb. Always interesting to me because he's a Navy SEAL. He's has a company, Softrep, S-O-F-R-E-P.com, which is like a military intelligence news website. But he took his Navy SEAL experience and turned it into a set of thrillers. And the latest one just came out. Cold Fear that he co-wrote with John David Mann. So I have Brandon and John on the podcast to talk about how do you write a thriller? I mean, these guys hadn't any experience writing thrillers, particularly military thrillers before. They'd written a bunch of books, but no fiction. And now they've been writing these best-selling thrilling novels. And they are page-turning thrillers. I highly recommend them. And I love my conversation about Cold Fear that I had with Brandon Webb, John David Mann. Here it is. Let's start the podcast. I want to reel it back to the beginning. First off, Brandon, to start with you, you were a Navy SEAL. As we've talked many times on the podcast, you started the sniper school of the Navy SEALs, which the movie American Sniper featured a guy who went through that school. You were writing books about the SEALs and your experiences with it. And then you had this great idea that there was so much interest in Navy SEALs. What's a fictional genre you could fill that there's interest in, but there's not many books for. Let's just, we're reeling it back to the beginning about how this whole series started. This is your third book in your thriller series. Brandon Webb and John David Mann wrote the book together. Going back to the beginning, I'm really interested in the process by which, how you figured out what genre to write a thriller in. And real quick, I didn't invent the sniper course. I ended up being a part of the cadre that reinvented it and modernized it and then got put in charge, which was a blessing and a curse. What, why was it a curse? Oh, it was like 90 hours a week, work week. And, you know, I, I had to give up my cushy shore. We call it a shore tour in the Navy where I could just spend and yelled at SEAL students, you know, three days a week and got my master's degree. <laughs> Instead, I was grinding this, this sniper course out. How do you get to be a better sniper? So it really comes down to positive psychology and mental management. And we taught the students how to deal with self-talk, how to visualize in their head, basically practice in their head perfectly, practice for emergency contingencies, um, that kind of thing. So it really got in their head. We ended up raising the standard and made it even more difficult, but we had a 30% failure rate drop to almost 1% overnight. Um, The way we taught in the past was like sink or swim. It was very negative teaching style. And there are situations like SEAL training where you just want to throw as much negativity at a student as possible and put them in these incredibly adverse situations and see if they have the kind of mental fortitude to, to overcome that themselves. But we said, look, we don't have to, these SEAL sniper candidates we're getting are already cream of the crop. We don't need to treat them like they're going through boot camp. 
and start yelling at them and pointing at all the mistakes. We need to adopt a positive teaching style. And rather than point out the mistakes, when, when you're a beginner learning something, by pointing out the mistakes, you're just programming them with a bunch of negative thoughts, right? As opposed to just going, okay, this is the correct procedure. If I see a student who's flinching on the trigger, I'm not going to go, hey, John, quit flinching because all he's thinking about now is fl the flinch. I'm going to say, look, hey, settle down, make sure you make a, you know, apply initial trigger tension, make a nice smooth pull and, and rehearse your mental checklist. That's a positive style of teaching as opposed to negative. Negative would just be like pointing out all mistakes. And, and when we did this, 30% failure rate went to almost zero overnight and it made a profound impact on my life seeing that happen. So I want to get to the profound impact in a second. And then of course, we're going to get to the thriller because I know John's listening to this and I'm sure plots of thriller novels involving a sniper school are going through his head, but that's really interesting. So going from pointing out the mistakes to just reinforcing, like, this is what you need to do here. And this is the checklist and go through your checklist that made such a fundamental difference in the learning. So let's, let's apply that to another category. Like, let's say learning a language. So let's say I'm learning Spanish. Yeah. How, how would you apply it? So let's say you're, you're saying a, a, a word in Spanish and I'm like, in, in a negative style would be me saying, James, damn it. Every time you say this word, you, you mess this up. Your, your pronunciation is all wrong. And you're pronouncing it like this. Maybe it's you're not you're rolling you're not rolling your R's, and now you're thinking, oh God, like every time I'm like saying this word wrong. Where I would just say, hey, look, James, when you say this word, make sure you say it this way and the correct pronunciation, and and demonstrate that over and over, and have you practice it over and over. That would that's the difference between uh, positive and, and negative teaching style. You see this in young sports athletics all the time, where the well-meaning coach would tell the, the kid going up to the baseball plate, hey, Billy, don't strike out. You know, rather than say, hey, Billy, hit it out of the park. You're, you want the same outcome, but you're saying it in a very, two different, very, very different ways that are going to put a picture in this kid's head. One is going to build self-confidence and enforce positive outcome. The other one is just negative and going to make it probably worse. And how important is the checklist part of this? Like you said, they need to go through their mental checklist. Hmm. Like, so rather than saying, here are your bad habits, avoid them. You say, here's a checklist of good habits, go run through them. How important is that? Flying an airplane, you have a checklist to ensure that nothing gets missed, right? Because you just can't afford to miss something. And so we stripped away in the sniper program all the BS and said, you know what, these are like the fundamentals of marksmanship. These are at a minimum, the, the bare minimum, what these guys should focus on. Now I took these seven principles and realized my mental checklist was breathe. So I would let out, exhale, focus, squeeze the trigger, breathe, focus, squeeze. I still remember it to this day. And that was kind of my positive cycle in my head. What about like aiming? Like what if you realize, oh, this student, his shots end up too much to the right. That's a natural, I can tell right there, it's a natural point of aim. So whether you're firing a handgun, you know, the handgun's extended, you could kind of naturally let your arms go out with the gun, close your eyes, open your eyes and see if your sights are on target or not. And if they're slightly off target, it means your natural point of aim is off. So you need to kind of adjust your body. So structurally your body and and the way you're pointed is on target. It's the tiniest little thing like that, like a natural point of aim that will cause your, just that slight little tendency if you're off your natural point of aim will pull the bullet to one side or the other. I see. So rather than do some artificial correction, like, okay, you know, you go too much to the right. So lean a little bit more to the left. You focus on, you ignore say, the negative and you just say, look, let's find your natural point of aim. Yeah, I would just say, hey, um, John, get your get your natural point of aim. Like, check your natural point of aim because you're just giving this positive correction, as opposed to like going into this negative loop. Um, and especially as a beginner, your your mind is this blank canvas, and I want to fill all the positive stuff in there that the correct stuff to do. 
not all this negative stuff because, you know, the sniper course is extremely stressful. It's three months long, seven days a week. And you, you wake up every morning and take a shot and, and the shot could be your last day on the course if you miss. So it's, it's, you know, you got to teach, you know, at the very beginning, teach these guys also how to have positive internal self-talk. But as instructors, we implemented this system, at least when I was a course manager, I said, guys, I don't want you pointing out mistakes. We have to give these guys positive reinforcement at every chance. And when we did this, the very first class, um, we started graduating everybody. And then we started getting perfect scores on tests because the students would, in the past, ask instructors, what's a good score? And we would set this kind of like an artificial ceiling. We would say, oh, well, a, a good 80% minimum to pass. But if you're shooting in the 90s, you're pretty good. Well, guess what? When we said shooting in the 90s, pretty good. Everyone shot in the 90s. And then when we said, you know, in this new system, we said 100%. That's what we expect. A, a good score is shoot perfect. And then for the first time, they started shooting perfectly. I just want to point out that all of this applies to writing. So, perfect. So, yeah, John, John, <laughs> tell me how this applies to writing. Because I've spent 30 years as a writer. I've never written a, a thriller novel or a great thriller novel like, like, like you have. But I've written other books that have been bestsellers. And so I've been thinking about writing as well. And, and I've, I've taught writing. But how, how do you see the comparison here? I mean, I think I think the number one thing that 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 stops my experience. Number one thing that stops most would be writers, could be writers, aspiring writers, potential great talents from ever reaching the finish line, is that self-critical voice. Is that ah, this is shit. You put down a paragraph yeah. and you go, "This sucks." You put down a sentence, you say, ah, "I could do that better." You put down a page, you go, "You read it over and you go, oh, this is shit," which is a mistake because it is shit. You're right, it is shit. Don't read it over. <laughs> what you do is you you start writing and you focus on what what isn't working, and you just you're just crushing yourself. You're going to choke, and it, it's so easy as a writer to choke because of your mind being focused on the things that you might be doing wrong. And I'll give you here's a broader example. I, let's say I'm working on a story, which as it happens, I am right now. I'm working on the next book in the series. You're working on a story, and you know you have all these different chapters and all these different sections. Some of those are really problematic for me. It's like, I don't know what the hell happens in this section. I don't even know who this character is. I don't know how to get out of this. But there are some pieces that it's like, oh, I can't wait to get to that chapter because I, I just know exactly how that's going to go. Or this is going to be so much fun to write, this piece of juicy dialogue. So I've developed a principle for myself, which is what I call the low-hanging fruit principle. I go where I know it's going to be a blast because it gets me in the groove. It gets me in the, in the flow of things. And uh, even though my natural tendency is to go right to the hard part, say, I don't know, I'm stuck there. I'm going to go that and try to figure that out. Like I can't, I can't do any more writing until I figured out this hard part. So it's a question of actually managing. I learned this in part, I mean, I, I, I listened to Brandon talk about the sniper school and I really absorbed it in terms of writing. It's a question of mental management, paying attention to what I'm seeing in my head, mm. paying attention to what I'm focusing on in terms of whether I'm beating myself up with a stick or I'm feeding myself this juicy plate of carrots. And uh, the carrots work just for me so much better. That's where the great writing comes from. So it seems like self-talk's important for both these areas. Like my own experience with writing is if I'm having a hard time, I do two kinds of self-talk. One is to say, hey, like you said, of course it's shit right now, but that's why there's 30 drafts for any book. Even right. 30 drafts for a simple article, I, I'll often do. And yeah. so, of course, it does, it's okay if it's bad. You know, I have a sense of the overall idea. I know that's good. That's why I'm writing the article. And drafts are bad, and, they, and that's why they're drafts. And then the other thing I do is, and what you said reminded me of this, I just skip the hard parts because it's a draft. Let's say I know I have 10 important points I want to bring up in my article, but I'm having a problem with the, the intro. I'll just skip the intro. Yeah. And, and you get to the points and then come back to the intro later. And Brandon, what's the self-talk for to be a better sniper? Well, um, I'll use my own personal experience. So I was not a great shot. I'd never grew up with guns. And when I went to SEAL tactical training, after the seven-month basic underwater demolition SEAL training, we called BUDS. 
uh, you go to this three-month SEAL tactical training course where your real training begins. They start laying the foundation of shooting, underwater navigation, underwater diving with uh, the rebreathers, which is a bubbleless system. And I was at this Laguna Mountain Warfare Training Facility, and I, I couldn't qualify. I needed a qualify expert, and I was having, I was really struggling. Um, and then all of a sudden, I just had to, I, I started thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, I need to get out of this rut. It's like a, like one of the, I felt like a baseball player that had a hitting slump. I was like, okay, I got to get out of this. Or I'm going to, I'm going to like not pass this course. And uh, all this seven months of hell would have been for nothing. Cause I'm back in the regular Navy. I just started thinking of myself. I go, okay, I can do this. Um, and then I ended up, it was like a switch. I just went and did this stress course and just blew it away. And people were shocked. I remember even the class officer in charge, Rob Byford was like, he literally said, he's like, holy shit, what happened to you? A year later, when I got picked to be one of the platoon snipers, the platoon chief pulled me and my, my best friend Glenn into the office and said, hey, you're, you're going to sniper school. And I knew that as a new guy SEAL, we didn't get these chances. Usually you don't send a new guy to sniper school. And I started thinking, oh my God, am I going to let the platoon down? And all this stuff started talking my entering my head. And I said, okay, wait a minute. I, I gotta, I gotta get that out of my head and, th and think about this differently. Uh, but that was in the back of my head. Like, how am I this self-worth conversation? Why I'm not good enough to go to sniper school. Why am I getting the opportunity? But then I started redoing the loop and saying, actually, I'm the best shooter in the platoon. This is the reason I'm going. And, and so I just started, I had to do it myself before coming back from war in Afghanistan in 2002 and having the opportunity to sit down with some of the best positive performance coaches in the world to, to design the sniper program. And I was like, oh, I was doing this myself to some degree, um, but getting this training with, with guys like Lanny Basham, who, who really built a, a sound, he's an Olympic gold medalist and built this positive psychology program before positive psychology was a thing. Um, it made a huge impact on me, John knows this, and my kids, how I talk to my kids, how I coach my kids. Coach me right now. Like, how can I use this to perform better at the things I want to perform better at? First, I would read a book called With Winning in Mind by Lanny Basham. Lanny was a, he'll tell you when he tells the stories, he was a, the kid that wasn't good at anything. In fact, um, in class, they said, uh, least likely, who's least likely to win an Olympic gold medal? And, and they put Lanny's name down in like fifth grade, back, back when the, you know, the classroom was very different back then. Um, fast forward is his dad said, no, Lanny, you just need to find out what you're good at. So he ended up becoming a, a great rifle shot. He, he was like, this is something that, that I'm good at. Ended up becoming a uh, or getting invited to join the Army Marksmanship Unit, which is called AMU. It's primarily most of the AMU guys are going to the Olympics to shoot for gold. He had went to uh, Munich, I think, in the early 70s and completely choked on the world stage. He was a world champion at this point, expected to win gold. He sat next to these Russian guys in the bus and they started getting in his head. They were talking broken English, like, oh, we're, I'm glad I'm not Lanny, the, the cameras and the pressure and all this stuff. And he started like thinking about this. Um, he went, he said he shot the worst match of his life. He still won silver medal. He's like, the worst thing is uh, when you're a silver medalist, people ask you a, a line of questions when they find out you're an athlete. Oh, what sport? Oh, how did you do? Um, and as soon as he says, I tell him I won silver, the first question out of their mouth is, well, who won gold? <laughs> you know, Right. You know, it turns out like if, if you if you look at photos, they did a whole experiment where they took just the faces of people standing on the Olympic medal stands. And so you don't know they're in the Olympics. You just see their faces, but they're on the stand. You don't know that. And you don't know they're at the Olympics. And they asked like a thousand people, label every one of these people happy, sad, whatever. And the happiest people were the gold and the bronze and the miserable people were the silvers. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, okay. Continue the story. Like how did he use positive self-talk to. So he comes back in complete. He's like 
totally depressed and goes to see all these sports psychologists. And he said, all they wanted to do back in the seventies was make me okay with being the first loser, the silver medalist. And he said, I don't want that. There has to be a better way. So he had access to the entire U S Olympic team. And he spent a year interviewing only the gold medalists and some of their coaches and really came up with the system of mental management, which is in the book I recommended with winning in mind. And he came up with a system and he applied it to himself and it had to do with self-talk visualization in the circles, right? You have self-image practicing to the point, like every time someone learns something for the first time, there's this conscious effort, but you want to repeat it so many times to, to get it to that subconscious and having these like circles and balance. So he used it and then went in Montreal, won the gold medal. So he wrote this amazing book, gave an incredible talk to our sniper staff. And then we adopted his system primarily with some other things as well, but mostly Lanny's system. And it had, I, I saw instant feedback. Like, like I said, we, 30% of the students would fail. Like we just knew that 30% are going home. And when we put the system in place, uh, we started passing everybody. So I made all my kids read this book like twice for their allowance when they were, you know, like 11, 12 years old. Um, and, you know, I see my kids in competition, whether it's speech and debate, chess or ski racing team, my daughter, they're like mental beasts. See, I need to read this because I can't believe the level of negative talk I've had lately, particularly as John, as, as Brandon knows, I've restarted playing competitive chess in real life tournaments for the first time in 25 years. And my negative self-talk is immense. And how, what percentage difference does you think, do you think it makes in performance? I think it makes a massive difference. The other thing that Lanny taught me was when you're in a, let's say you're out shooting baskets, like practicing free throws and you just in this slump and you can't hit a free throw or like for me, if I'm playing as you know, you, you coach me in chess. If I'm having a bad day at chess, the worst thing I can do is keep playing because I'm reinforcing this negative self-image. I need what if you're in a tournament though? How do you stop in, a, in the middle of a tournament? Well, that's a different thing entirely. Yeah. You'd have to really um, develop some type of like mental checklist or contingency. Like if this happens, I'm going to do this and go back to this. You're going to have to like have some, um, some stuff written down, which, which you'll get out of the, that book with winning in mind. But when you're, when you're on a run, when I'm on a chess run, I'm like, I'm just keep going. And then if I, if I lose a couple in a row and I stop, but if I'm on a roll, I just keep going. Cause I want that positive reinforcement, that positive imprinting rather than the negative imprinting of, Oh, I'm a loser. I keep losing. Like, why did I blunder that? You know, <laughs> blunder my, my, uh, Rook. So, but that book with winning in mind is incredible and it's, you know, it's on Amazon. So I, I would definitely I get it. And, and John, you were going to say something. I'm just so familiar with you. You said, how much difference does it make? To me, it's like all the difference. It's just, it can be like a black and white difference. And I'll give you a sort of a different example, but it's still the same principle. So our first novel came out last year, Steel Fear. It was our first thriller together. And it was a two book deal with Bantam. Then when they bought our book, they said, that we want to buy two. Well, so we already knew before we'd really finished the first book that we were going to do a second book. So our first book comes out. It's got all this incredible praise. You know, Lee Child said it was sensationally good, an instant classic, maybe an instant legend. I mean, Jesus, you know, there's like unbelievable stuff these, these legends of writing are saying about this book. All that sounds really good. And all, all that is really good until you're the guy that has to write the sequel. <laughs> and, and then you're sitting there going, and you, in this case, is me. I'm sitting here going, oh, shit, I got this gigantic shadow over my head, which is the first thing, first book we did. And, and how do you, I mean, I think every creative artist has suffered with this. What do you do for an encore? And it's, it's really hard to escape the gravitational pull of the thing you just did. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And this, the saying in, in movies and, and, and everything, which is you're only as good as your last deal, as your, as your last film, as your last review. Well, what if the last book was great and everybody loved it? And now you got to follow up with something. And so, and I'll say it again, to escape the gravitational pull of that is very, very difficult because you're not going to write the same book a second time. I mean, if you do, it'll suck. It's going to be a different book. It's got to be a different story. 
It's like in, in Steel Fear, there was this serial killer. Um, who's the serial killer in the new book? Well, it's not the same book. It's different. And, and, and to escape the onus of that, the umbra of that, and just write, it takes uh, enormous skills, I think, of self-management. I think some of the biggest skills involved in writing successfully are mental management, self-state of mind management, so that you can let the thing flow and not get in the way of it. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of en entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So for that second book, Cold Fear, excellent book. So, okay, so how did you self-talk your way into keeping the same characters, yeah. but transforming it enough that this is a new book and we're excited about it? The short answer is you have to fall in love. Like in this case, find the character that you fall in love with. Find, find the situation that you'd be like, oh, shit, this is so great. And in this case, Cold Fear opens up the first book. And you know this, James, the first book opens up not with Finn, the hero, but with Monica, the helicopter pilot, who's based on a, on a 
helicopter pilot named Mona that Brandon actually knew on the, on the Lincoln. Well, the second book opens up with, basically opens with this Icelandic detective, Krista Christiansdottir, who is this, this um, somebody who was, re I was recently at a, at, a, at a book thing in a bookstore and the host said, this is the first character that's like Finn's equal. <laughs> this detective get, kind of goes head to head with him. And she was just like a cardboard character when she first dropped in the page. But within a couple of pages, like, oh, my God, I'm falling in love with this woman. She's phenomenal. And it, it's the, the force of falling in love with a character or an idea, if you're writing nonfiction, or a situation, some element on your page, you just go with that. And that's, for me, that's the way you get out of underneath that umbrella of, of the past book and the other stuff. That's so interesting. That is a really interesting concept, like the, this idea of falling in love. Because like you said, at first, when you dropped her in the page, she was cartoonish. And if you think about, let's just take the classic story that everyone knows, which is Star Wars. And you think about Darth Vader, you see him initially in Star Wars, he's just completely evil. He's killing people left and right. He's threatening Princess Leia. You know, you just have no idea. It just seems like pure evil, like Satan. And, um, but through the nine movies and now these different subseries, you realize there's a huge, you, you, you basically start to fall in love with Anakin Skywalker. He becomes the main <laughs> character of the whole, the whole series. And that transformed Star Wars and, and the, even the, the, the kind of genre of all the spinoffs now. Like, I don't know if you saw the latest Obi-Wan Kenobi spinoff, but, it's a real it's emotional great, side yeah. to Darth Vader. And so that's really interesting. So, and this again is all related to, to learning because I guess, I guess part of the self-talk also is you have to love yourself in these situations. Like, let's say you're, you're learning tennis and suddenly you start losing and you say to yourself, oh, I always lose when I'm in a clutch situation and I don't know what's wrong with me today and blah, blah, blah. When you're feeling that way, it's hard to even believe that just self-talk is going to help you. Well, even John and I had never written fiction before. One of my good friends who's an editor at a major publisher said, why are you writing fiction? You guys are like great nonfiction team. You have this fan base. Like, why would you do this? You know, basically like this is going to fail. And, you know, and I said, I just believed in the, in the story so much that, somehow convinced John <laughs> to as well. But here are two rookies that sold our two book deal for probably the largest advance I think I've ever gotten uh, in 2020 in the pandemic. So it just goes to show you can't really, you you know this James, but you have so much, so many naysayers in, in your life and you just got to shove it aside. So, so John, how did you self-taught your way into thinking you could write fiction and you, yeah, you use, I mean, uh, people kind of, at least historically, people have always made fun of genre fiction as opposed to literary fiction, but that is just like a BS thing. Like yes, genre fiction is really hard because not only do you have to tell, have good character, good characters that could be just as fine in a literary novel, but you also have to have the elements of a page turn. You have to make people turn the page. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so which doesn't happen in literary fiction often. So, how did you learn? Kind of that there's various skill sets for not just writing a novel, but writing a, a thriller novel. Yeah, I mean, and your your tennis thing is so apt too, because it's like you know you, you're screwing up on the tennis court. You're saying, "God, what's wrong with me today?" Wow, that is so powerful. I mean, it's so powerfully negative. <laughs> that that simple statement that so many people say in their heads, "What's wrong with me today?" And most people say it silently, but even say out loud and don't realize they're saying it. People do this. So what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Jesus, it's like, it's like negative hypnotism. And uh, when, when Brandon first suggested back in 2009, I mean, this is a long time ago, Brandon first said, would you ever be interested in writing a novel together, a thriller about a serial killer at an aircraft carrier? My gut immediate response, my head's response was, God, no. I don't I have no idea how to do that. That's impossible. My gut was like, oh yeah, I'm in, I'm in. And fortunately I spoke out of my gut and said, yeah, let's do this thing. But, but my head was very real. It was like, I frankly didn't have any idea how a human being could write a novel. It just seemed like 
impossible. You've got all these characters and plot lines and stuff you've got to hold in your head. And how do you do that without your brain exploding? And, and, and how do you come up with all this, all these different details and all these different ideas? It just seemed impossible to me. And it, it took, um, when people ask us, why, why did it take a decade before you wrote it? I think we've given all kinds of different answers and they're probably, you know, mostly BS, but I know one true answer was for me, it took me 10 years to get to the point of thinking, yeah, maybe we can do this. Well, what, what, wife, made you, what made you think finally that you could do this? My wife kept saying, you'd be a great novelist. You'd write great novels. And, and I borrowed from her belief in me because I didn't have it yet. And, the, and that was one factor. And the other was Brandon. And it's exactly what Brandon said. Brandon had a killer idea for a story. He had this, you know, you know for a book to work, to really work well in terms of the marketplace, there's got to be a hook where when, when a person just looks at it, the title, the concept, they go, oh, I, I got to read that. And what they call the um, high concept in Hollywood, right? Brandon had an idea for a book that was killer. It was a hook that everybody, when they first heard about it, goes, oh, God, you got to write that. And what it didn't have was it didn't have a hero yet. It, 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 we didn't have a clearly defined hero. And we spent like a decade thinking about, okay, we got the serial killer, we got the aircraft carrier, got the situation, which, as you know, was in part based on an experience Brandon actually had on yeah. that aircraft carrier. There was no actual serial killer, but there was something close. What it didn't have was this hero. So we, we, we thought for a long time about this, kind of dreaming up who would be the guy who's looking for the serial killer. And the important thing was that the guy had to be as broken as the as the situation. The guy had to be somebody we'd really care about, had to be somebody we'd fall in love with. He had to be somebody who was you know, complicated and had a screwed up past and, and was really struggling to find his own humanity as well as to find the serial killer. And as it turned out, actually exonerate himself from war crimes, which he didn't commit. At least he doesn't think he committed them. Um, he can't be sure because he can't remember. Once we had this screwed up, beautiful mess of a wonderful hero that was equal to the fantastic storyline that Brandon had brought to the table. It was like, you can't not, that, that pulled me over the edge to say, you, that, that book has got to be written. It's just too, wow. But then, you know, you, you do all these great classic things that a good fiction writer does, which is even the minor characters have backstories so that you care about them. Um, you know, you have a lot of the classic tropes of thriller, thriller novels. Like, think of think of the Bourne Identity by Robert Ludlum. Jason Bourne is in the middle of the Mediterranean with amnesia. Yeah. So, so he's he's the first scene or the first chapter. He's in a life or death situation. Like, if he wasn't found, he would have drowned, and he also can't remember who he is. So it's like so classic. And in, it happens in, in science fiction, it happens in thrillers, it happens in mysteries, that the amnesia thing is just a great trope to, to use. And you use it in, in Cold Fear. So, <laughs> by the way, when I'm reading Cold Fear, I didn't know you had never written a fiction novel before the first book, uh, Steel Fear. I thought you were like an accomplished thriller novelist. <laughs> and Brandon, that's why Brandon was, was working with you on this. I had forgotten that you had not written All right. a thriller before. So I'm like, oh, this is, and then I, by the way, then I was negative self-talk. It's like, oh, I can't write a thriller novel. This guy like, <laughs> right. I can never do that. Two tricks of a thriller novel. <laughs> right. I mean, I've had a ton of thriller novelists on this podcast in part to kind of gear myself up to, to making an attempt and inspiring me right now that, that, I could do it, but like, how do you come up with, uh, you know, okay, let's just give this guy amnesia for a while. And then let, now we have to also make it everywhere he goes, he's going to get accused of something. So he's always like running from everything. <laughs> like these are all like classic tropes when you pull them off. And, uh, you know, it's just, I don't know quite what the question I'm asking is, but it seems like you fit this idea into very good, you know, thriller format. I, I can tell you one thing that, that it, I don't know if this is a technique or a strategy or exactly what, but one thing that, that I notice happens over and over is we'll get, let's say Finn in this case, into a situation and I'll think, now what would be really ridiculous? What would be really impossible? What would be a situation you can't get out of? Or what would be something that, that he would never do because it's too outrageous? 
okay, do that. <laughs> and I mean, obviously you don't want to go over the top so it just looks absurd, but I'll give you an example. There's a point in the story, uh, and this is a tiny bit of a spoiler alert, but there's a point, not a big deal. There's a point in the story where Finn is kind of in the dark and he, he, he needs to know more than he knows, which is almost nothing. And I thought, and he's on an aircraft carrier, which is, you know, this is the US Navy. This is a very buttoned down, very disciplined environment. And I, I, I know one day I just thought, well, what if he breaks into the captain's room and like spies in the captain? Thought, oh, that's ridiculous. Nobody would do that. I mean, you get caught doing that that's just on an aircraft carrier, break into the guy's place. Got to do it. Got to do it. So, you know, you come up with ridiculous things and then you think, how can we make that just a little less ridiculous, just feasible enough to, to pull it off? And, you know, that's that gets readers on the edge of their seats. And then did you did you call up Brandon and say, hey, if you wanted to break into the captain's room on an aircraft carrier, how would you do it? And Brandon's first response must have been, there's no way you can do it. <laughs> Actually, I was like, this is how you do it. Exactly how you do it. <laughs> um, but James, I was from getting to know you. One thing I appreciate about your writing is you're always looking at this crazy angle. Yeah. Always. And so I think, yeah, you would make an amazing thriller writer. It, it's true. I, I do it in nonfiction. And that's why people... I, my goal really a lot in, in nonfiction is to draw in elements of fiction that aren't normally in nonfiction so that somebody says, someone reading it says, I can't believe he just wrote that. Like, cause you wouldn't see that normally in a nonfiction thing. You might see it in a fiction thing, you know? So using that kind of dissonance has always helped me, but you know, it's, it's interesting. So, okay. So you get, you decide to get into the military thriller genre cause there wasn't enough really like a well-known category for, for these military thrillers and, and so on. And you, you sell this concept. How did you sell the concept of a two book deal? Didn't the, didn't the publisher say <laughs> like you have, why would you, why would we let you do this? Like you you guys are nobody. We only wanted, we thought, I think we were going to market with one book, but yeah. our, our, our editor, Anne, who we both in the process were like, wow, we really like we really like her the best was the one that said, no guys, you guys, you know, they, she had unlike fiction where you can sell a book without a manuscript, we had to turn in the goods and she's just said, look, we want, I want two books out of you. I see. Uh, so, so, you, so you wrote the whole book first. Yeah. That's, and you have to do that with fiction in, in yeah. the fiction world. And the other thing I, I noticed is a little bit different about the process is I do think having a good editor like Ann Spire is as a great, she's a great collaborator. And even on Steel Fear, she was like, guys, you got to pick up the pace. Like get, we, we had turned in over a hundred thousand words and, and trimmed it down to what John 80 ish thousand. Which well, we, was, we started out James with a, over 150,000 words before we got to the publisher. When we just showed it to our, our, our agent, who was, by the way, a phenomenal editor herself. Um, yeah. she's a, she was a huge, huge asset to the... Without her, I don't think it would have gotten published. Who, who's your agent, by the way? Alyssa Rubin. Yeah. She's with WME. Um, oh, WME is my... Uh, Sus Sus I worked with Suzanne Gluck on my last book. Alyssa's phenomenal. I've heard of Suzanne. I've heard she's also phenomenal. She um, was. She is. So we, we took this manuscript to her. It was 151,000 words. And she said, guys, this is great. There's a lot of great stuff in here. You know, it's got to go down to 100,000. It's like, wait, wait, wait a minute. You mean take out every third word? What is that? What is that? You like take out the diphthongs, take out the constants? What are you? <laughs> well, can I ask, like, was the first scene not as impactful? Like, how did you start off slow? Because with a thriller, one thing I noticed about thrillers is you got to, somebody's kind of got to die or get kidnapped by the first end of the first scene. Yeah. It's a funny thing, too, because Steel Fear doesn't start that way, and it kind of goes against convention. But we started, I think, we had too much on background on Steel Fear, and that, yeah. that was, okay, you guys got to, like, get it going. There's a writer I love, a writing coach I, I love, who talks about cutting words without cutting content. He says, your goal is to take out words without taking out content. Squeeze out the extraneous stuff, but leave all the, the, the meat of it. And that's uh, that's sort of what we did. Although honestly, in the course of going from one fifty one to one hundred thousand, we took out a couple of whole characters, took out certainly whole chapters, took out uh, you know we had two NCIS guys in there, 
um, on board the boat. They're gone. Uh, Master Chief Jackson had an assistant named Liz Rodriguez. She is gone. I liked her, but she's gone, man. So we, we really paired that little sucker to the bone. And it just, every time we made it shorter, it got better. I mean, when, I'm, when I coach writing or, or teach writing, I always look for what I call placebo writing. So yeah. if, a, if, a, <laughs> yeah. if simple ways, if a sentence is, if the, if the paragraph has the same meaning without the sentence, you easily you take out that sentence or that word or whatever. But it's taking great. out entire characters, you have to have a really good overall awareness of what the book is saying to know when a, when a major character is just a placebo. Yeah, that was, it was really challenging. That, by the way, didn't happen with the second book because we really learned from the first book was like a graduate course on, on how to write a thriller, I think. And the second novel, we had same editor and she was just as great, but the process was so much easier because the, the first draft we turned in was a lot closer to what it needed to be. So, so without giving away too many spoiler alerts, what were some of the um, challenges when you were writing this? Like, like what were the, some of the situations where you said, okay, I've got to put Finn in this ridiculous situation. I'll tell you one, which is something that didn't exist in the first book. In the first book, there's a serial killer, as we all know. And you don't find out who it is till the end. So, you know, basically, you've got an unseen villain. In, in Cold Fear, you see the villain pretty early on. And, and this was a real challenge because the, the villain, um, making him come to life without being cartoonish, making him like a seriously scary character without being over the top, and also, he's a SEAL. He's a former SEAL. So you have the SEAL versus SEAL dynamic going on. And making that just insane, but also believable, that was, that was I think, really challenging. And how did you think about it? Uh, for me, I'll tell you that I was first writing, I, you'll, I'm sure you'll appreciate this. I was, when I was first writing this character, Boone, Boone is the, the bad guy. Um, the, he's a serial killer, now turned contract killer. A serial sniper turned contract killer. Um, the first few chapters, it was like not working. Boone just felt like a caricature. It felt like a, like a smarmy, too clever. It just like it wasn't working. And that happens sometimes for me. Like you put it on the page and no matter, I tried every trick in the book and it just wasn't working. I had to put it away. And I went out and I read No Country for Old Men. Ah, oh, that guy is, that guy's a maniac. He is like to me the but scariest like character. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, he's amazing. He's like a force of freaking nature. Now Anton Chigurh got in my head, which was a great thing to have in my head. I went back to Boone, and then and then you know Boone started to started to work. So I think sometimes you you know you need to you need to put the work away and go get good influences. I am so glad you convinced me that the family car should be the Defender 110. It is so beautiful inside. It's so comfortable and it just feels indestructible. Yes, it really is. I've been waiting a long time for the new model to come out. The Defender 110, I'm telling you, it's my favorite car of all times. It's my third one. You know, I have stories of going off road. The guy managed the group. He was like, what are you doing in this beautiful car? I'm like, I'm going off road. He's like, are you sure? Because you can use one of ours. And then they look like Mad Max cars. I'm like, no, 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 no. we're going to do this. And he was shocked. Wow. Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and its unparalleled off-road ability, as well as its robust interior, are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in, featuring peerless technology like an intuitive driver display and an award-winning infotainment system. That's my favorite part, to keep you connected no matter where the journey takes you. Adventure is unique to everyone, and so is the Defender. Choose from the two-door Defender 90, the four-door Defender 110, or the larger Defender 130 with the ability to seat up to eight passengers. You'll find uncompromising performance in all three. So pack up and go even further with the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. 
And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. Hims, H-I-M-S, Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use Hims from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's hims.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. The other question I have, and this is something I, I ask, maybe it's just an excuse for me not pursuing this, but are people reading fiction these days? Like, are they, how are these books doing compared to your nonfiction books? I would say what I learned anyway was that this is, like, John and I are, are climbing Everest, and we're, I think, just at base camp now, and we're, like, getting acclimated, but you have to build fan base. You And it's like, the conversations I had with, with my friends in, in video gaming, it's like the first game is not probably going to be a smash hit, but it, it's like the spark that starts to light the, the fan base fire. And over time you just build upon that. Like, you know, Steel Fear did okay on the first go, but what really drives the fan base is we just had this massive mass market paperback release like you can find steel fear on martha's vineyard every airport bookshop it is out there everywhere and the mass market paperback is really this fan grab and we're at this point now where we're continuing to to grab fan base and you know cold fear drops and and the next book three comes out next year same time for father's day and and that's what i learned it's like this is not you know, just run up to the top of Everest and John and I plant our flag and be like, we win. This is a slog. And we're like, you know, checking our O2 to make sure we got enough. And the oxygen. publishers are willing to go along for that ride still? And they, I think they really understand that. And Anne has been a, a kind of a trooper and kind of coaching us. Look, guys, this, we know this isn't, this is the way it works. And so, and John and I have great resources with Brad Thor, Lee Child, Bob Kratz. It's like really have gotten an incredible amount of support and teaching us. On the other hand, the other thing I want to say is that, that when, when Steel Fear was, was, we were about three months out from Steel Fear um, dropping the, the first book. I started going to people that I know whose podcasts I've been on and who's, who, I, who I knew from promoting previous books. And these have been all books. Most of my books have been books about things like leadership and personal excellence and, and you know, really nice, pleasant, uh, friendly things that no serial killers at all. Right. <laughs> and so I, I'm thinking these people are not going to want to read Steel Fear. They're not going to want to read about a serial killer in an aircraft carrier. But I would just go and say, hey, guys, I'm going to actually put out a novel. And they were all going like, Really? Well, that sounds amazing. You got to tell me about that. And what I discovered is that all of my nice, wonderful leadership excellence friends love to read murder mysteries. And in fact, what's really cool is um, we've got like high school friends of my wife's and people in our in our, our who work in our house uh, and people who, 
you know, we know locally who have never picked up a single one of my nonfiction books are like eating up cold fear. They love oh, it. That's great. So it's, it's, it's really, feeling. yeah, it's, it's really fun for us. I think too, I don't know what it's like for Brandon, but I know it for me, I've, I've got like fans starting to come out of the closet who've never read my other stuff, which is okay with me. By the way, it's, it's interesting. You bring up like Brad Thor, Lee child and stuff as, as inspirations and influences. I think, I think this is a big difference between like a thriller and a mystery. Like you take a Brad Thor novel and I've discussed this with Brad Thor. You kind of know who the bad guys are immediately. Like there's no mystery there. But what Brad Thor does really well is at the end of every chapter, there's a cliffhanger. Like the bad guys just caught you. What, you know, and then the, on to the chapter ends. The bad guys now are aiming guns at you. Chapter ends. But, you, but the bad guys are right there the whole time. Like you know who they are. <laughs> and, and Lee Child, I don't know as, as much. Um, it sort of feels like initially you're not quite clear who the, the bad guys are, but, but it's pretty clear among a bunch of choices, one of them is a bad guy. And, uh, uh, but with a thriller, you really have to kind of have these other tropes like the amnesia or like, I've got to, people are after me to, and I, and they're accusing me of something that I didn't do. I've got to find the real person or, you know, there, there's other tropes involved and, and it's just interesting. The differences, like, like what beats you have to hit along the way. And we're kind of cross genre too. We're, military thriller crime as well right like there's this murder in Psych psychological thriller sort of go that psychological yeah. thriller edge well it's like it's like it's like i think when you're creating your own genre based on like a field of life like military that's a great thing because like look before um john grisham and the guy before him the guy who did presumed innocent i, I forgot his name scott turo to scott turo uh there there's the, the legal thriller wasn't a thing and now it's of course the biggest thing so uh, it does make you think like what other areas are, you know, untapped, like legal, military, medical thrillers were big, of course, with, with uh, Michael uh, oh, Crichton. Uh, yeah, Crichton. And uh, even before that, Robin something. Oh, Robin Cook. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. wrote Coma. And then look what happened with, uh, with, with pathologists, you know, and the whole CSI explosion. And there were, yeah. you know, whoever thought of a, of a, of a whole book about an autopsy, you know, yeah. it's crazy, but now it's like, it's a huge thing. So, so John, when, when, when Brandon was talking about sniper school, what, what's a, what's a thriller idea that could come out of that? <laughs> I mean, these, they're the best of the best. So why are they dying one by one? <laughs> yeah, mean, there you go. Like it it and, itself, man. <laughs> and maybe the head of the sniper school is accused of it. But he has to solve. But so so he has to solve it before he's caught and thrown in jail. And but he knows the styles of all his students so well. That's what, how he starts narrowing down who the possible suspects are. But then maybe they're faking the style you, to be more like his us, style. You don't need us. You don't need us for this, James. You're all, okay. you're you're on you're on your you're on your roll. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I like the idea that a head instructor gets recruited by some black agency to take out the president, the sitting president, because there's they've decided that he's un, unfit to serve. Why? Why would he take the role? I mean, is this a, is this a fantasy of yours or or what? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what no. Why would he take on the Probably role? Not, uh, Secret Service is monitoring this. Not no. Oh, maybe um, he would. Maybe he would take on the role because he's he's told by the CIA or whatever, hey, someone's going to approach you with this, take on this role. Then, then maybe the guy at the CIA who, who tells him to take on this role is killed, so he can't use that as evidence that he actually was working for the good guys. But then it turns out the CIA wanted the president out in the first place anyway. I, I like the, thinking about it, riffing off it, I, I actually like the idea more of the Ayn Rand um, Reardon kind of character approaching him going, look, our political system in America is broken. These two party system, like we need a new, new order. We need to fix things. And, and here are the best industry, like Titans of industry gathered. And, and now we, we're basically bringing you into the, the fold to wipe the, maybe it's like a full, you know, president on down, you know, president minus seven. So it just completely wipes it, wipes out our political system. But, but, but the thing is, though, you know, it feels like a bad thing for him to take on that role. Is he convinced of, that it's a good thing or 
does he have another motive? Um, I, I think he could probably have multiple motives, but but I could tell you this from serving in the government. Yeah, you know, I, I used to I used to think there were a lot of smart people in politics that that were worried about this foreign policy decisions. And and now that I'm out, I'm like, wow, we we really do not have the smartest people running this government. <laughs> so I could get behind something like that. Well, for, for both of you guys, when have we ever had a good president? Like going all the way back. I mean, JFK comes to mind. But JFK, you know, messed up in the Six-Day War. He was having nonstop affairs, which distracted him from government. Uh, he was... Uh, taking tons of medication, which affected his, his judgment. Bay of, Pig, Bay of Pigs. Yeah, yeah, Bay of Pigs. Sorry, because he he kind of inherited that. I did a case study on that at, in Harvard Business School, but he inherited that problem. And they, the way they approached the Cuban Missile Crisis was very different. Um, and just as a snippet, uh, we watched this documentary on the on on the whole thing. But in the first Bay of Pigs, everyone was afraid to speak up. They interviewed people afterwards and. They said, yeah, I didn't want to, I was afraid to say something because I didn't want to look stupid. So the second time around, Kennedy ran a masterful um, meeting with regards to the Cuban Missile Crisis. He's like, look, everyone, everyone, including myself, has a voice. Everyone can say something. Everyone better speak up. So it's just a much better environment to kind of like solve the problem. Um, so but, let's say, let's say right now, China invades Taiwan, and we, we have something similar to uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, where Biden sort of would have to take action of some sort, just like JFK did. If you take action, you're risking World War III. So what, how do you think Biden can learn from, or any president can learn from the Cuban Missile Crisis you know, and apply it to the China-Taiwan situation if it happens? I mean, I, it comes to me, it comes down to empowering every, getting the smartest people in the room, regardless of of political leanings, and setting the the ground rules. Like, here's the issue: we're all aligned on this, and we're going to lock the doors, and and we're going to we're going to um, videotape everything, and everyone better speak up, and everyone realize and, and be empowered that they need to have an expert opinion, right, and not not be afraid to speak up, yeah, not not pass, and not be sitting there thinking like this is crazy, but being afraid to speak up. Cause that, that second, I'm sure there's that, that documentary out there is available on the, on some rush obscure Russian site for free. Um, but really paying attention to how Kennedy masterfully ran that second meeting. Cause he learned, he realized the Bay of Pigs is a huge failure. Yeah. Um, in, in hindsight, like terrible idea. Everyone knew it was a bad idea except the CIA and nobody, everyone was afraid to speak up. Yeah. Classic. A Stalin-like Classic. environment. Yeah. Classic yes speak. Yeah, and I think yeah. a lot of that's happening now, the, the afraid to speak up thing, even in well, society. Forget about Taiwan. You talk about just simply Putin starting to invade Russia. That that was what people were saying. Uh, well, he Biden could take this action, but would that trigger World War III? And you know, that was the situation you just you just described. Yeah. I mean, we're sort of already in it. We need need those smart people in that room now. <laughs> Needed them I like the idea in, of video taping it too. And yeah, I'll change like, my answer. I, I think Obama mm -hmm. was a great president, to be honest. And look, like the three of us, nobody's perfect, right? We've done, we've done fucked a lot of things up yeah. <laughs> in life, but you got to learn and, and make the best of it. I think Obama was a, was a really good president. When I think about Obama, I, I don't know great or bad, but I would say that I remember during the election, like in October, the month before the election, Congress did not pass a bailout package. This was during the financial crisis. And Congress, the, stim the first stimulus, they didn't pass, if, if you remember that. And so Bush brought together all the congressional leaders, Republican and Democrat. Obama came also, and McCain came also. And McCain was silent throughout the whole meeting. And Obama right. and W are who convinced right. Congress to pass this, the second stimulus package. And I was very impressed by that, that it was that he knew when to take a bipartisan role and that this was important for society. And that, that was impressive. It was also impressive to me, the Romney-Obama election, I felt was roughly, depending on who you like, there was roughly an election, uh, uh, you know, a comparison of equals, like where they were both super intelligent people who, who, who wanted mm -hmm. to be elected and were ambitious, but they, they, 
it wasn't it didn't inspire all the hate that 2016 and 2020 inspired that was the last election where i would have been happy if it went either way <laughs> yeah exactly i i was i i always say i miss i miss the days of of romney versus obama because yeah. it didn't even it was occur sandy. to me yeah I, I i didn't vote in the election because i didn't care actually who won so uh well there's a lot i never vote so that's that's the other reason i didn't vote but <laughs> that's also a compelling reason <laughs> so when what's the third book going to be about well the third book is about uh how much can we say here i will say this uh, in every book, there is there is a mystery within the book, which gets solved by the end of the book, right? So first book, serial killer, aircraft carrier. Second book, a girl drowns herself at the beginning of the book, and nobody knows why, and that mystery drives the whole book. You find out by the end why she drowned herself. Third book, there is a mystery that gets solved by the end of the book. But there's also larger mysteries that arc over all the books that are questions of, of Finn's origin story and Finn, Finn's own, like you said, his own Jason Bourne stuff. Um, yeah, it just remind, it reminds me of Jason Bourne because... Every movie there, he's unlocking more and more stuff about, and every book he's unlocking more and more about his uh, his past. The guy who, and, and Brandon would say this if I didn't, the guy that we're working with for a possible screen ad for the screen adaptation, which could go streaming series on TV or could go a series of feature films. We're, we haven't quite decided which way it goes yet, one or the other. But the guy who's spearheading that um, was the creative force behind. The Jason Bourne movies, because he was. Oh, you're he kidding! Was, he was the agent who represented the Ludlum material at one point. So he, he, yeah, he created. So for him, he saw Finn when he read Steel Fear manuscript before it was published. He saw Finn and thought, "Next Jason Bourne." No, not coincidentally. I mean, I love the Robert Ludlum books. I read. I initially read them, and then I've seen all the movies like three or four times and <laughs> i just convinced my mother-in-law that she's got to see them all so now i'm, I'm all set to watch them all again so so because it's it's great stuff and it's a great character uh so i hope i hope you guys succeed in doing that and it's very inspirational to me how years ago brandon told me how he was pitching these these books around and and had just gotten the deal and that was inspirational to me as well that you know you can take these other aspects of life and it's kind of the American dream to write the great American novel and, and you guys have done it and congratulations. And these are, are, are fantastic books and fantastic thrillers. I love a good thriller. Um, and I, 20, 30 years ago, I would look down at genre fiction until I realized how great John Grisham was. And then I've read tons of genre fiction uh, ever since. So, and you guys, well, hopefully it's no different. Release of the the movie or this this the series on one of the streamers. Yeah, and by the way, the movies on this on this on Netflix and stuff, those are great movies. Like they yeah. they're all good enough to be critically acclaimed releases. And they're even better than all the critically the you know yeah. the biggest movie releases are Marvel comics now. So those are horrible. Yeah. Whereas I just saw a movie last night on Netflix and Adam Sandler, uh, where he's like oh, a basketball yeah. agent. And uh, I forgot the name of the movie now, but uh, it, was just, be great. It, was, it was just a great movie. It was a beautiful movie and I loved it. And so many good movies on these streaming services now. So I honestly hope you're, you go, you get on a streaming service because I don't like going to the movie theaters anymore. <laughs> so, well, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. Everything you've said is so inspirational. It's given me a lot to think about. And um Look, I look forward to having you on for for the next one. And as always, you're you're always both welcome to come on anytime you want to talk about anything. So thank you once again. Thanks, James. I'm ready for chess lesson next week too. Yeah, that'd be great. Pleasure chatting. 